F. Scott Fitzgerald is often quoted as having written, there are no second acts in American life. And it's true, he did write that, in a novel he never got to finish, though his own life disproved the notion time and again. To begin with, Scotty's most famous book, The Great Gatsby, was a commercial disaster upon release and plunged even further out of favor in the hard times of the Great Depression. It was transmogrified into an American classic only after his tenure as a failed screenwriter in Hollywood and his tragic early demise. Most people are familiar with his fraught, drunken, dissolute marriage to Zelda, but when his life ended, Scotty was stone sober and went to the grave with a very different sort of woman by his side. Before him, there was Wild Bill Hickok, another American icon, famed for having slaughtered magnificent beasts, waged war against Native Americans, and for having played himself in his own Wild West show. Both men weaved myths around themselves and reinvented their iconographies endlessly and relentlessly. They did so in the daylight of their lives, and so it continued in the weird twilight of celebrity after death. Though in the end, like John Ford commanded, we chose to print the legend. In the three-part Netflix documentary, Arnold, we have another classic American character, this one who hails from Austria. The film is divided elegantly into three chapters, bodybuilder, movie star, governor. At the helm, parsing the interplay of fact and fiction, is director Leslie Chilcott. In our conversation, we talk about collaborating with producers, as well as horse-whispering a larger-than-life subject into delivering a performance of perhaps the greatest role he ever played, himself. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with Leslie Chilcott. All right, Leslie, welcome to the show. So happy to, uh, to, so happy to have you here. It's an honor to meet you. Thanks for this. So you worked with um, a couple of my good pals uh, on the course of this, uh, Alan Hughes, Doug Prey, and then I think Big Star did the graphics, did they not? They did. Big Star, they're longtime collaborators, and um, I hope you are as well, but I am just a big fan of them. Everything from, you know, comedy to commercials to documentaries to everything, they're, they're really talented. Absolutely amazing, Josh. Josh is an amazing, amazing character and uh, does great and sort of consistently innovative work. I adore him as well. I feel like um, he can read into your mind sometimes, too, because, you know, I'm sure you know, you're like, I want this. And you're, you think you're being incredibly descriptive and then he'll rephrase it and rephrase it in a way that you're like, yeah, that, that's what I meant. Well, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. It's interesting you bring that up because really, I think a lot of documentary filmmaking, because you're not operating from a clear script and sort of the exact notion of where you are, you have to surround yourself with co collaborators who can reach inside your mind and pull out kind of the, you know, if you give them the kernel, they have to pull out the execution of that. So talk about that a little bit in terms of, you know, who you s surround yourself with and who the key collaborators are and what the decision making is as, as you decide who you're going to work with on a given project. That's a good question. And I think each project has its own special circumstances, but obviously, and, and I don't know if you feel this way, but your editorial is the most important. So when I'm putting a new project together, I figure out at the same time 
who my cinematographer is and who my editorial team is at the same time. And that's the main tripod for me. Um, and a lot of times because documentaries have this nature, you can't always have the same cinematographer the whole time. But if you can attempt to do that, and there's certain kind of, you know, uh, like I make a rubric at the beginning and, you know, each episode is going to have these things and they change, but, and that evolves. Same thing with the look. So for me, it starts with, with camera and editing. So tell me about the origin story of this particular project, Arnold. How does this come about? When does it come to you? Like, what's the, what's the origin, what's the origin story? I got the call from your friend, Alan Hughes and said, Hey, we're three-part documentary. We think Netflix is the perfect outlet because of Arnold's international stardom. You know, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, what's not out there about Arnold? And Alan was like, I said the same thing in the beginning, <laughs> right? right? He's like, I said the same thing about, you know, this crazy journey. And we talked about how, you know, if, you, if you're American and if you live in Los Angeles, especially, you kind of grow up with Arnold being a presence, right? So, so, icon, so you do, yeah. And, yeah, and you do think, well, what's not to know? I mean, I kid you not, I worked out at Gold's Gym in one to 2013 and I logged a little know, time there so I know exactly what you're talking about yeah so we would we would see Arnold you know coming and going and 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 if you didn't see him he was on the walls everywhere in golds you know the posters were everywhere and the pictures from the 60s 70s and the original golds gym so back and forth and and the trajectory of going from what really was an obscure sport of bodybuilding you know in the 60s to where he ended up I mean, you're a filmmaker, you know, we look for layers, right? And, and arcs. Yeah. And arcs. And Arnold is incredibly complex. There's much more meets the eye because his persona is, is always winning, right? But there are about five, six layers there. And the more we talked about it, I thought, yeah, okay, how can I not do this? So how clear was the vision from the get-go in terms of the, the tripartite structure of it? Because it is like, that's such a clear, clever um, kind of hook and organizing principle that seems kind of baked into his life. Was that, was that the sort of, was that the vision from the get-go or did that manifest itself as you went? A little of both. And I'm, and I'm glad you picked up on that because really all we had at the beginning, the athlete, the actor, and the third part, we actually were calling public servant, you know, politician, public servant for a long, before we discovered alliteration and all A's, right? So um, that was it. And within those episodes, we weren't necessarily going to go chronological, but starting, it was key because this is the part that people, I mean, they know him as the body and always have, but this is the part that people know the least. Right. The childhood and growing into the athlete. So that was it. We had those three verticals, if you will, and, and nothing else. So um, I had a lot of freedom in that sense. It also allowed Arnold when, because I must have done between the audio only interviews I did where it was just me and, and sound recording equipment and him and on camera, you know, in the end, there must have been over 40 hours of interviews. So while it was different, I don't share my questions, but I will say, hey, next week, we're going to talk about the wedding, you know, or we're going to talk about this because for a guy that's done, you know, 
hundreds of things each year. He at least needs a heads up. Yeah, he's sometimes some time to cook it in his head and sort of resuscitate the the vivid meat, the details and memories. So exactly. Um, so let's talk about the interviews because I'm very curious about that and I'm curious about your process. I too oftentimes will do both audio only interviews kind of initially to kind of get a bead on it in some way or another, but you always want them to be usable in case you get to the point where you're like, oh, okay, even if he's not on camera, because there's also a looseness and a freedom that happens when you're not kind of at the business end of the camera. Talk about the interviewing process, and and I guess even before you get to that, Set the scene a little bit about kind of building the relationship with him and the rapport. Um, you know, how well does Alan know him when you guys start, when you first meet him? Because this is such an essential part of making a film is, is having that trust and, and, and the, the subject having the security that they're in good hands. Talk about that. Sure, sure. I'm not a big believer in pre-interviews. Not because they're not effective, but sometimes you'll have the best thing in a pre-interview. And then when you go to actually be recording on camera or on audio, you're like, can you say that thing that you said, you know, and then the subject can often say, well, like I told you, or as right. I said before, or, you know, things like that. The first time I met Arnold, um, Alan and I and Peter Nelson went over to his house and that consisted Alan had met him a handful of times. Um, they'd been talking about the documentary for a while. And so I was being introduced and Arnold literally grabbed, walked me into his home office. We went into his home gym and it was great because I could ask him about a lot of the photographs. You know, he has a lot of photographs from all the amazing, you know, verticals in his life. And it began with just a lot of hangout sessions, you know, and we had those conversations where we said, there can't be any topic that's off the table. Everything has to be on the table. And so then it consisted, it evolved into, uh, you know, FaceTime calls two, three, four times a week. You know, I'm researching this. What about this? Where is As I would find photographs Arnold had never seen, he would send me photographs that you know, someone had recently sent him. And so it really began with building a trust and talking about how we were going to handle the thornier issues. And I said, look, we're going to get to those. And the most important thing with someone, especially when they've been a politician, is that we have to get him off his talking points, you know? Yep, yep, yep. Sort of get get it to that point where it catalyzes the, like, reality of the experience, not just the kind of rehearsed versions of the story. Is that what you mean? That's what I mean. And, but when someone has been an, not only a top paid actor and governor of what, you know, one of the largest economies in the world, he has a way of, of spreading catchphrases virally in a way that cannot be stopped, you know? And yep. I'll be back, whether he's running for governor or, you know, uh, doing a video about vaccines and saying, come with me if you want to live. I'll be back really is his life mantra, you know, and, and it's his own feedback loop. So he has this circular chain of effect that mystery to Arnold, right? Like the essential mystery is, did he create the trend? Did he ride the trend? Did he just popularize a trend? Right. You know, and, and throwing in his mantras in a way that are hilarious, that they're like bad dad jokes, right? Right, right. And he's like, you know, 
I'm, I'm there in the morning filming him with his mini donkey and his mini horse, and he's telling them jokes, even when he's by himself. You know, sometimes we would walk up and he'd be, you know, he knew we were there because security had to let us sure. in. But, you know, he really is that guy, right? So to capture that, but also show, okay, here's a little bit of the Arnold we all know, and that is the real Arnold. But in those rare moments where there's a little tell and his one eyebrow is higher than the other, or he's looking off to the side and he's having these candid moments, we needed to capture those as well. So when you go to sit down and shoot, you know, what is the the centerpiece interview or centerpiece series of interviews with it? Like talk about the, you know, deciding where to shoot, where to start, kind of what's your process in, in, in terms of craft and, and setting the look, feel, and kind of where you depart in, in his story. Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, his home office is sort of a combination of Austrian artifacts, awards, and governor memorabilia, starting with the dark shelves and the big desk and the California flag and the whole thing. And he was clearly comfortable in that room. So the thinking was twofold. One was simply strategic. If we film at his house, I'll get more time with him, Mm -hmm. right? And the other one was, this was the room that kind of represented the three phases of his that he is now, which he calls, you know, the, the plan to live forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we pulled a lot of the furniture out, but used the room itself. And so he could literally come from his sort of outdoor office and, you know, we would say, we'll be ready for you at 10. And with our, he's not late. He's hundred percent professional. We were ready at nine fifty-five, and he walks in at 10 o'clock and sits down and leans forward and looks at me and says, what do you want to know? Fantastic. What's the very first thing you ask? What's your first question? Do you recall? I don't think I do recall. Initially, I arranged most of my questions chronologically because I thought it would be easier for him. Mm -hmm. But we jump around a lot. So I think I did start with the origin story that had to do with, you know, why Reg Park was such an influence on him and how that first started abandoned that and went into childhood and started talking about, you know, the village where he grew up was full of, of broken men, mm-hmm. right? It, which, which is such a fascinating kind of arc that you follow through and, and, and which I want to explore in more detail with you. But first, I guess, um, talk about some of the other visual decisions that you make in terms of like that opening is so striking and beautiful and, and kind of unexpectedly poetic. Um, talk about crafting, you know, that opening in the first episode, cause I just loved the way you came in. Arnold had told us that he gets some of his best ideas when he's alone and he's rarely alone, you know, in the hot tub. Um, I, really wanted to show Arnold in his element. And that's why shortly after that, you see monkey running through the yard because that's really what it's like. You go over there and here's, you know, the Terminator, the governor, or whatever your instinct is to call him. And he's got, you know, Lulu. <laughs> Dude with many donkeys. Here he <laughs> yeah, is, right. The mini donkey and Whiskey the mini horse. He has a pig now. He's got all of these. It, it, it's really refreshing, I have to tell you for someone who has had the successes that he has, that he actually is happy and that he enjoys all of these things. 
And it's quite shocking. I, I'd be kicking back with all my farm animals. And he does that for an hour or two every morning after he feeds them and cleans the stall, you know, which is also in the documentary. But then he's, you know, he's about to turn 76 and he's he's working on his pump. You know, of course, his app would be called The Pump, right? And um, he's working on his self-help book and, you know, he's got his his first, you know, uh, action TV series, and he's running his Schwarzenegger Institute, and he's planning for next year's climate change summit in Vienna. So I wondered a little bit from your original question, but to quickly establish this isn't just going to be a string out of Arnold's greatest hits. We're going to show you things you haven't seen before. We're going to give you the things that you expect yeah, that, that, as you, well. that you know and expect, but also, yeah. right. And quite honestly, that goes down to the camera choice. I mean, Logan Schneider, who's our cinematographer, who, who I've worked with for, for years, um, he and I did a test and we decided that we shot with spherical lenses, we shot with anamorphic, and anamorphic actually felt like it was one of Arnold's movies, right? Mm, so we went away from that, stuck with spherical lenses, we worked with um, uh, the Sig Airy Signature Prime zooms, which are just incredible lenses in clarity, but the but the but the right really beautiful skin tones, but the background falls off lovely, and we wanted to use the large format because it isolates Arnold in the environment. It, it depends on your subject. If you're doing a straight follow doc and you're following kids as they're trying to get into a lottery or you're following um, uh, girls like in my in my movie Code Girl, you know that you're everywhere that they are. But the thing to know about Arnold is he will not wait for you. He will not wait walking out a door. He will not wait at all. So you have to be ready at all times. And we decided to use mostly prime lenses. I don't know if you want to get into this. And even if it meant he might walk away, film star first and foremost, you know, and so I wanted to bring that, that, that quality to it. And are you, how many cameras are you shooting in your interview? Just two. Just two. Yeah. Both operated. Uh, both operated. B-cam wasn't always operated depending on who we were interviewing. In fact, in the series, <laughs> I'll tell you this, when Arnold says, do it, do it now, I actually said, Arnold, I have to change the lens on B camera. And he looked <laughs> at the B camera guy and said, do it, do it now. So that's where that came from. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, how many shoot days do you end up having with him? How much of that time is dedicated to interview? How much of it is dedicated to Verite? Are you doing both in the same day? And how clearly do you have that scheduled when you set out to make the movie? Um, it ebbs and flows. I usually try and plan out like the first quarter of the shoot days uh, to try and be efficient. But when you're interviewing, you know, David Cameron, who was the prime minister, you know, of, of England and Danny DeVito and, you know, uh, former uh, mayors and all sorts of people, you know, you can't always be a Jamie Lee Curtis and James Cameron, and you know, weren't available the same day, right? right? So, I don't, I don't, I don't know how you do it, but I always try and have a scheduled interview with a little verite, or if I need to do special scenes, I try and get those done on the same day. But in terms of Arnold, 
we did um, multiple days at the house spread over a year. Um, Interesting. Yeah, that were that were probably uh, close to thirty hours, and then there was probably ten hours of audio and, and other. And did you shoot most? Did you begin shooting his interviews, or did you shoot the supplementary ones? How were you determining who else to bring into it? Because I imagine it's sort of in some ways, a never-ending cast of characters that you could choose from. How do you navigate that in terms of uh, deciding which are the additional interviews you're going to shoot, and when do you shoot them? How much of Arnold's interview have you shot? We did, um, I started in January of 2020, 2021, sorry. <laughs> that would have been way too long. It was, it was a long time. And then we probably didn't shoot Arnold until Arnold was the first interview and we shot spring for two consecutive days. So my strategy was, um, cause a lot of times the second day can be better than the first, right? And we could also set everything up in his office and then walk away that night and then start right away the next morning. And he is an early morning person. So that, that worked out for all of us. So. I, we had it scheduled in chunks of two. There, there was the odd time where there was only one interview, but we were sort of biting off maybe 25% at a time. And then usually something, some incredible story of his would come up during the interview that would completely derail. Mm -hmm. I find, you know, the most challenging part of, of directing interviews is you have things that you want to, <clears throat> excuse me, you have things that you want to talk about, but you need to listen. And if your subject is going to tell you some fantastic things that goes in a different direction, then, then, then you go with it. Yeah, and, you, you always have to be kind of available to that pivot, right? Like you, you come, you have to be meticulously prepared so that you come in knowing what you want, but then you have to stay open to, oh, wow, this is going to a weird, interesting, unexpected place. Now I have to follow it. That's right. That's right. And when um, speaking about um, the abuse that he and his brother, you know, suffered from their father, um, I was actually going to get to that later on and he and he said something just very little hint about it and i'm like okay well maybe we're ready to talk about this now you know and i'm talking about that at a time that i hadn't planned on originally it would that was a really striking um moment and sequence in the film or series of sequences where you kind of get these um cracks or windows into the dysfunctional formative relationships, you know, the estrangement from his brother and the kind of unpredictability and volatility of his father. And then the kind of, you know, the weird processing that takes place uh, or, or lack of processing as he sort of charges on. Talk about that a little bit, because I thought that was a very, um, you know, profound and loaded and deeply felt um, series of moments, not only the dysfunctional childhood, but then with the deaths of his brother and his father, how he reacted to that. Talk about that further and what your, what your experience of that was. Yeah, it's, it's, as you can imagine, it's not something he about, but he's also from that generation where, you know, we don't talk about our feelings. We go and work out or we ride around in our tank or we accomplish things and we achieve our goals. And, and his singular vision and goal setting is, is unparalleled. 
with him if he took a break to play chess he can't play chess and talk to you he is playing chess mm -hmm. and if he was working on one of his foobar scripts he is reading the script and working with his acting coach and he is not multitasking even though he does a million things i mean the singular focus is just really interesting to see mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because you have to wait until that focus is done but when that focus is turned to okay i'm ready to be interviewed now he's not looking at his watch you know or phone or he doesn't even bring those things into the room and he has a bit of a competitive interviewing him and i'd be like okay you want to stand up for a minute nope good you know and he just wanted <laughs> to stay in that locked in yeah locked in in that in that zone so when you start to ask the sensitive questions you know i would i would say beforehand okay we're going to talk about these sensitive topics today or we're not we're, today is movies we're gonna we're gonna stick with that um but when those little moments happen, like when he started talking about his father and his brother, you know, you have these decisions to make. Do I sit back, even though he might talk for 15 minutes and not interrupt? Or do I interrupt and say, I need that, that same bite? And it, it really changes with him. And, and, you know, as I'm sure you know, you have to be a bit of a chameleon when you're interviewing someone and you have to adapt to their style. But because he's from that generation that doesn't like to talk about these things, even when he has a revealing moment, you know, within a minute, he's like, oh, but the neighbor's kids, they were hit too, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so he can reveal it, but he still has great respect for his father and he was very close with his mother. And so he, he can pop back into there. So I think the, the real um, effort is to live in that world just long enough so that it's uncomfortable, but not too uncomfortable. And we get something that he hasn't done in a video or, you know, a news article or something like that before. And sometimes we went back, like when he had talked about how his father abused him, it wasn't a, he said how. So the next day I was like, you said how, what were the things? And that's when he says this thing. First, it was a branch, then it was this. And, and those are difficult things to, to recall. What were the most um, awkward, complex, you know, painful, sensitive subjects that you that you broached in the interview? And, and, and tell us about kind of how you navigate them in that moment, knowing that there are these these things that you have to get to, but that it's going to be, a, you know, awkward or loaded moment. I think talking about his brother's death was very awkward because he says alternatively, you know, our father abused us, I became stronger, and my brother went in a different direction. And, you know, and as you find out, his, you know, his brother was drinking and, and had a drunk driving accident and, and died, like, when he had a baby, you know, far too young. But then he says, I had a rape. And so you're like, well, which is it? Had you erased him or had you not? And because they had clearly taken these se separate paths, and he had that singular focus, he had erased him for a while, but imagine putting someone out of your life like that for whatever reason, whether, whether it was because of how the father treated you. And, and as you see in the documentary, you know, his whole life growing up, his father was like, 
who can pick the best bouquet of flowers for mom. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's weird, yep. right? Yeah, it, well, and, and also to be the one who is not the favored son in that instance, it's particularly kind of acutely weird. And it's weird also then to see the kind of way he transforms that trauma or whatever you would call it into the fuel that becomes his drive. That's right. And in the end, you know, and he says things like, you know, if Meinhard would have, have been a bodybuilder, he probably would have been better. He had that natural physique and he had that drive, but he went in a different direction. So knowing you were, you know, he was very much made to feel like he was second. And all of our childhoods, you know, no doubt, but Arnold's in particular was extremely formative for him because he ended up having that, part of that competitive drive is innate, you know, that can't be taught, but being second, and being not the favorite drove him and 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 drives him now. And so the the question was to get him to reveal that in a way that was comfortable for him, but revelatory for us. So that was a tough day. And then, you know, the other obvious tough interview is when he is talking about the affair that he had and he knew that we had to talk about it, but it's not pleasant. Because no matter what he says, someone is hurt by it, right? And what was a real revelation to me was you'll never hear Arnold say the words, I made a mistake. And he can't say, I made a mistake. He did to, to Maria and the family. It was awful. And he says that. But he has a 25-year-old human life, a son that he's very proud of, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how do, you, how do you reconcile with that? Even when you're not in the public, you know, you're sorry, but it wasn't a mistake. And so that duality, you know, to, to ask the viewer to, to look at that, and even though it was a clear error in judgment to realize, you know, you apologize, but you can't say that. That was a really um, a rough day, and 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 quite honestly, after that, I had other things planned for the afternoon that 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 we really couldn't do because Arnold mm-hmm. was spent at that point. And I'm thankful he went there, and um, he doesn't intend to to talk about this anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it, like it's interesting what you're talking about there because it, it's sort of what was coming up for me as you were saying that is it's like the Jungian concept of holding the tension of the opposites, right? Where it's this clear sort of, you know, moral failure in some way or another, but there is still this like, you know, the beauty of the, the son that's born and it, it's the complexity of that, that you are asking him to hold and that then consequently you're asking the audience to hold that complexity too which I think is really compelling that's really nicely put I I agree with you and and also the there's also a yin and yang with you have someone who's clearly accomplished an incredible many levels yet very flawed as we Mm -hmm. all are Mm -hmm. but but very flawed in a way that's very public Mm-hmm. you know and and it, it, it and he took these steps mm-hmm. and you know has to own them mm-hmm. it's really difficult and it's really difficult i'm sure for the kids to have such a public mother and father and even though i mean the kids would come by in and out and you know arnold would be talking to maria and they're all really really tight still 
playing with that duality I was is really like I don't know about you, but I, I try and make sure each story has four or five layers. <laughs> and and that was one of the key layers. And throughout this project was, you know, that, that Marcel Proust quote, it's something like, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Yeah, beautiful. So I wanted to bring new eyes to Arnold. We have Arnold see with some new eyes and then maybe yep. he could share that new perspective, perspective. Or, or wisdom with us does that does that make sense yeah beautifully be beautifully beautifully put and i think very effectively achieved which is a tall order to do because you are playing with all this like iconography kind of conventions of genre whether it be the genre of biography or the genre of the films that he's done and yet you're trying to weave in these layers of complexity and this freshness of vision to it so that it is an additive complex experience for both him yourself and the viewer right yeah yeah i think that's right and i think you know there's this extra challenge i did a i was fortunate enough to do a documentary a few years ago called Watson about a personal hero of mine, Captain Paul Watson. Um, do you know who he is? Yeah, yeah he's, sure. He, and I, I know your film. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, just he, he was the youngest member of Greenpeace at 19, got kicked out for being too much of an activist, started Sea Shepherd Society, you know, and, you know, is the guy famous for ramming his ships into illegal yep. Japanese whalers. And, but he too has these mantras that catch on, whether it's fundraising for what they're doing or trying to get attention to things that are happening in the ocean that they can't see. And I did something similar with him in terms of the master interview, you know, where you have this one location that you, that you keep coming back to. And you have to get through these layers to find out what that person's overall or overarching personal philosophy mm -hmm. is on mm -hmm. life. And Arnold has several philosophies, right? Mm -hmm. And what's great about Arnold, he wants you to know what they are. Mm -hmm. He wants mm -hmm. to share with you. He wants you. to transmit them, right. He wants to transmit them. And he's like, inside baseball, come in the tent. And he had a, he had a physical tent when he was governor. But he, everyone that comes over, you know, he, he holds court in his backyard. He's like, I'm going to tell you how we did this. So for us he's fascinated by process. And mm -hmm. so I was able to, to use that and, and, you know, as so a tool. that yeah. as a tool, so that, thank you. So that we, we could talk about a lot of the sticky issues and just a lot of the, the, the fun issues about like, you know, he almost blew his entire career by being disrespectful for Dino, to Dino De Laurentiis and saying, why does a short guy like you need such a big desk? I mean, that right. things that come out of his mouth, that's yeah. the one thing. For yeah. as much as he wants to have these mantras, um, he really doesn't have over what comes yeah. out, which is, yeah. which is fascinating. Right, and, and they're amazing one-liners that do come out, whether they get him in hot water or not, right? I mean, they're, they're hooky. Yeah, um, they're, they're hooky. And then he'll remember these things, like he, we were filming in his little village of Tal, and he had told me he was sent in the morning to milk the neighbor's cow because they really grew up with, they had a nice home 
it, you know, no running water or electricity, but the home was nice because it was the home for the police commissioner. So it was mm -hmm. given to them. You know, the mm -hmm. forester was on the first floor, police commissioner was on the second floor, and we're trying for a verite moment, but word had got out that Arnold was there. So all the people poured out of the museum and people came from all over and were following us around. So I don't enjoy being in my own documentary. So I right. was pulling back and Arnold's going in the house and he's like, Leslie, Leslie, where are you? And then I'm like, I'm back here. I don't want to be on camera. Stop, you know, don't say anything. And, and he would walk further and he goes, Leslie, are you nothing? <laughs> and my accent is terrible. My, my cinematographer, Logan, does a brilliant accent. But then, of course, that's our joke for the rest of my life. Are you Right, nothing? of course. Of you course, know? of course. Those, those, those are the life memories that make all the, like, you know, pain and sacrifice and hassle along the way worth, worth, uh, worth having suffered through. Um, I have two craft questions for you and then a, a final question on top of it. And I guess craft questions are, you have this, you know, astonishing archival record that you're working with. Um, talk about kind of how you begin to organize that, both the, um, you know, from early photos to the sort of verite stuff at Gold's, like the wealth of archival material that exists. Um, talk about how you sort of contended with that and sort of, you know, map the use of it a little bit for us. Yeah, I mean, we had to buy a whole separate array of, I don't know, 20 terabytes <laughs> just for, for archival material. And um, we were also... Uh, talking to some of the networks about uh, material that they had for interviews that had never aired and could they share that with us and there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff from movie sets that hadn't ever aired. The biggest treasure trove of course is all of the outtakes from an unused footage from Pumping Iron. It was that was amazing that stuff. Yeah. We probably have close to over the three episodes probably have you know somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes of that material in the film. And there were hundreds of hours of that. So that was a divide and conquer method of all of us watching different, different uh, pieces of it. What I was most thankful for is the early, you know, Venice Beach footage. Yeah. And um, being able to show, you know, what a phenomenon is when you have this cartoon book character come to life that's Arnold and Franco in a slightly smaller form, but incredibly strong. It's common now, but it was new then. And for as many people that loved it, they're like, who are these crazy people? You know, yeah. so for, for me, the most important thing is to take you to that place and to use whatever you can to bring out the cultural currency of the time. So mm -hmm. stock footage of Venice, maybe it was photos of Arnold, maybe it was footage from Pumping Iron, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but you have to immediately be brought there in a way that isn't just your character telling you what it it's was immersive. Like. Yeah, it's, a, it's and immersive. I thought it was so beautifully done how you did that. It, it, like it really it, it sort of plunges you into this world that you almost couldn't imagine the sort of surreal circus, like particularly given the era and then how beautifully so much of that is shot is, is just amazing. Well, it was all shot on film, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, that was fantastic. And, you know, uh, Steve Preston, who edited one, and Poppy Doss and Travis Wright Evans, who edited two, um, they were really sensitive to, to, to all of that. And, and, you know, even more than on most projects, the amount of watching 
to find the exact right thing was 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 pretty daunting. You know, do you have the, you know, I, I don't know how you feel, but you can have the most beautiful footage, but if the audio isn't good yep. in a documentary, people tune out. Goes, you know, yeah. it's yep. it's why you can actually watch a really crappy quality video on YouTube and it's still interesting if you can hear, you know. Yep. Yep. So we were always making sure, and we have such fantastic sound people, and we were always making sure that we were hitting you with the audio as well as, as the video for, the, for these things, especially with its archive. And if the archive sound quality wasn't good, then we would try and bring something else to it. In the era when Arnold grew up, you know, there are five total family photos, you know, mm -hmm. even though mm -hmm. he's famous. Yep. So the challenge for me and for Logan, my cinematographer, was we would find these few photos and then we would do what I call original photography. Yep. And yep. This was my this was my next question. It was? We went to it naturally. Yeah. Perfect. Should I should I go? Should no, I no, wait? no, go, go, okay. go. Okay, okay. So the reason I call it original photography is because um I prefer, especially when it's someone's memory, to do impressionistic attempts at what they're remembering. Yeah, something more, something more lyrical rather than literal. Yes, exactly. Something more lyrical. That's a good way to put it. And, and the reason is whether or not you have music in a scene, I feel like you have to cut musically. Mm -hmm. And if you have these impressionistic versions of Arnold, but you don't see his face, you know, or he and his brother having to do push-ups to earn their breakfast and you see little kids, but you don't see faces and, it, and it's part of his memory. You can go there if it's not overly literal. Mm -hmm. And the ourself on this is if possible, let's shoot in the real location. So even though his house is a museum now and they found his original bed in the attic, the bed was in the wrong room. Mm -hmm. And Arnold's like, well, I, you know, okay, yeah. I'm like, where was it? And he goes, oh, you know, it's here now, but it was over there. And we moved it exactly to where mm -hmm. it was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Through our, our FaceTime calls, in three different calls, he'd mentioned the different bodybuilders he had on his wall. Uh -huh, and I was uh -huh. up to about 11 at that point. We had those printed. We didn't show him beforehand. And we put them up on the wall and we had the bed and we said, you know, you know, come over to your old house. And he came over and while the interview on the bed was planned, it wasn't planned that he was going to be like, oh my gosh. These are the guys. I used to lie here. And he leans back with yeah, his hands yeah. behind his arms. Yeah. And we get to live that memory with him. And so my favorite scenes, because even in a documentary, you have to use narrative elements, in my opinion. Of course, of course. To create the scene ripe for the natural thing happening so that it can naturally unfold. And then you get those moments like that. Essentially, you're production designing from the kind of uh, what remains of A, the memories, and B, the photographs. You're having to like then conjure it in a way that is a poetic evocation of it that puts him back into place and puts the audience there. And I thought that was really elegantly and smartly done. Um, very, very well executed. Um, okay, so my last question for you is 
talk about the process of sharing the film with him. And when you're making um, a film of someone's life, and particularly a character of that statue, and I talked with Alan once about that, you know, working with Dre and um, and, yeah. and kind of what that process was and, and, and the kind of, you know, bobbing and weaving and fallout and you know the the whole the whole sort of thing like what was your what was your experience of sharing the film with him and and what was his interaction with it um it was really interesting experience i'm really fortunate we're all really fortunate he doesn't like to watch rough cuts and we probably wouldn't have shared them with him anyway but what we would do i would send over little short videos of sections, you know, and you know, you got to send little videos that he can watch on his iPad <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they can't be too high resolution because they have to fit in an email right. because if it's a link, he won't get to it's it for a work. month. Right. right. So you have to learn, you know, each the person's yeah. way of viewing. And in the beginning, it, it, the things that the only things that I share was, is this factually correct? Right. Because even with someone who was as well as he, as he is, some of the history is wrong. Like his 13 international bodybuilding awards, a couple of them are called the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So we would have vintage magazines and in one magazine, it would be called this and one magazine, it would be called this. And one of them had to do with the, you know, was it Mr. Junior Europe, something else. And, and we would go through all these titles and then I would, you know, ask him if he had the actual trophy. Um, and it turns out his mother gave away some of his trophy. People wow. would come by and she'd be like, oh, yeah, Arnold left this here for me. And the person would be in tears and she and she would go, well, you can have it. <laughs> <laughs> and she gave away his trophies. And then years later, people would they would make their way back to him. Right. So a lot of it was was fact checking, despite what's in this book or in this book or in this previous thing. Is this the correct thing? And then if. And most of the time he knew, but if he didn't know, we would track down the documents. We would call Albert Busick at that event. And he said, mm -hmm. this was the title, you know, of the event. And it wasn't until um, he was in Toronto filming FUBAR and we were delayed because he left for five months. I flew up to Toronto to do another audio interview. And episode one was really far along that time, except, you know, 10 minutes too long. Mm -hmm, <laughs> And to see, you know, it was anything glaringly wrong. And so he made an exception and saw a rough cut in that case. And then, I'm sorry, this is a really long-winded answer. It was not until the end that he was he was shown the episodes. Um, it's important to put out there that uh, because there are a lot, you know, the celebrity doc is, is a genre right now. This is not that. He did not commission the doc and he did not have editorial control. But if mm -hmm. something was wrong wanted you know to know how did he take it when you when he finally got to see the whole thing what was what was his reaction well he watched alone you know without us there he did he did um facetype me right after the end of the third episode the third episode was particularly challenging because when you're governor of now the fifth largest economy of the world for seven years i mean that's a, its own eight-part series right so sure. we, we could never bite off all the accomplishments and all the failures, right? So we concentrated more on the arc of the recall and then Arnold's governing style, mm -hmm. as opposed to hitting all the things and a little bit of what his legacy has been. I mean, history is is looking quite kindly on some of his major accomplishments that had to do with the environment and, and 
for me, those accomplishments were actually the reason, you know, that was the tipping point for me when I was weighing, you know, this project. AB 32, which is a which is the Global Warming Solutions Act, was passed in 2006, right after An Inconvenient Truth came out, which I was yep. a producer on. Yep. I remember yep. when that happened. Yep. And I remember like, wow, this Republican governator, as we were calling him at the time, just passed significant environmental legislation. But, you know, that part of the documentary is under a half hour. So there's mm-hmm. not, you can't be that that comprehensive. So we wanted to know if we got the gist of his governing style right. And that, that was the main thing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, uh, it's a beautifully executed series, and uh, I'm such a fan of your work, and I'm so glad that it's out there in the world. And thank you so much for sharing your time with us this morning. Thank you so much. And I'm impressed that in addition to being a filmmaker, uh, you find time for a podcast. It's cool. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, between that and four kids, it's quite a juggle. So, um, Thank you so much, and, and, and thanks again for doing it this morning. Really cool to be here. Thank you. All right. Take care. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. Music by Zydepunk. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Thanks for listening, and please don't forget to subscribe.